You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Welcome. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you've come to join us this morning for worship. Great opportunity to uh, gather around, singing some good songs, and then uh, being uh, taught from God's Word. We have a a great preaching team uh, with our uh, three branches, really four, with our Khmer ministry or Cambodia ministry, and and we circulate around. And this morning, you have an opportunity to hear from one of our uh, circuit preachers. <laughs> uh, he mostly preaches over at the Los Alamitos branch. Uh, but Paul Schleep has uh, been a pastor for a number of years in the Central Coast. We just call it Northern California because anything north of the grapevine is Northern California. <clears throat> Some say we should just divide the state right there. Uh, but then what do you do with, you know, Central California? Yeah. Just, what do you do with that? But Paul's been a uh, pastor there for a long time and uh, been uh, involved in ministry with that. He is now involved with our district. We are part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, the West Division. And uh, Paul is on that team. He serves uh, as the pastoral care person. He goes and meets with pastors and, and encourages them. And Paul's done that with me. We've gone out for coffee and had a great time. And, and actually, the fun thing is, is that um, Paul lives in uh, Huntington Beach area, and uh, and it, their their main office is was it, is it Turlock now? Uh, where is that? North California, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> north of the Grapevine. Yeah, north of the Grapevine. <laughs> and uh, uh, their office. So, so he he was seeing looking for an office in here, and we have an open space uh, office here. So Paul is uh, going to be residing in that for a bit and coming down and studying here and being among us. So we're going to benefit from him as that way. But uh, this morning he has the opportunity, and his wife Sharon is here, and she's, she's there. Hi, Sharon. Uh, uh, and just has an opportunity to finish off this series in Nehemiah with us, and Paul is going to bring God's words. So let's welcome him as he comes up. Good morning. Sharon and I, uh, in June, will have been married 42 years, them happily. Uh, we've been studying together in Nehemiah. We attend over at the branch. It's been great to, to walk through this study in this Older Testament book. But what I thought it would be helpful to do, and I guess I should probably start the timer, although it won't mean anything at all. (laughs) By the way, my challenge is to stop speaking at about the same moment you stop listening. And for some of you, it's already too late. But anyway, uh, we've been down in the trees, and it's easy to do in a sermon series to get so involved in that particular section that we sometimes lose the bigger picture. So I thought it'd be helpful just to back up a little bit. You remember that Israel was 12 tribes. There were 10 in the north and there were two in the south, and eventually, in part because they had been skipping their Sabbaths and their Jubilee years and so on, God said, I'm just going to put you in captivity to kind of have you realize I meant business. I do love you, and this Sabbath is for you, and you're not using it, so you just go off. So Assyria came in and took the ten tribes away, scattered them throughout the Middle East, and that's about the last we hear of them. A few of them continued to live in the northern part or the central part of Israel, and intermarried and became a group called the Samaritans. And you may have heard of them, and that's where those came from. Then there were the two tribes in the south, and eventually Babylon conquered Assyria and came in and took those two tribes into captivity in Babylon. Uh, The Babylonians then were conquered by the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were conquered by the Medo-Persians, who are the ones who said to Nehemiah, if you want to go back, you can along with Zerubbabel and Ezra and certainly others. Uh, 
people actually took Jeremiah's advice, which was, while you're in captivity, put down roots, live there, intermarry, etc. Or get married, but not intermarry. Uh, but get married and settle down. And so when it came time to go home, they all went, no, I, I like the food here and I've got good neighbors. And so of them did go back in and begin to settle. And generally speaking, the three leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, it breaks out this way. Zerubbabel took charge of rebuilding the temple. Ne- uh, Ezra took charge of rebuilding the temple. And then Nehemiah took charge of rebuilding the wall. There's some cross-pollination in that. You can see Nehemiah in this passage is going to be very concerned with the spiritual condition of the people. But Ezra, the scribe, was the one who made sure that they were hearing the word of God and their lives were beginning to change and get back on track. So over the last few weeks, we've seen the wall completed. We've had celebration of that. There's been revival as they hear the word of God. They're beginning to say, oh, okay, I, I get it. And the last part of chapter 12 is kind of a run into then what we call 13. And by the way, remember, originally there weren't chapter numbers and verse numbers. So somebody who's reading this would have read, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion of the, uh, for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So uh, Malachi, by the way, who was a contemporary of all these guys, that last book in the Older Testament, um, somebody think, some people think it's, he's Italian because it's Malachi, but it's really Malachi. And he talks about the same thing, about bringing in the, the food into the storehouses so the Levites don't have to work and tend their fields. They'll actually be taken care of. Um, where were we? Oh, we were in Nehemiah. Or as some people said, the shortest of the Old Testament writers because he was Nehemiah. But that's not true. Um, so Malachi, Nehemiah, they'd said... We were supposed to be taking care of the priests and the Levites. They heard the word of God. They said, oh, that makes sense. Let's do that. And so as we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 13, the revival continues. Verse 1, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of Elohim. Let me pause there a moment. This was not don't have anything to do with the people around you. This had to do with who could, in essence, belong to what we would now call the church. Who can be sort of a voting member and a participant without any question whatsoever. And it was written in the law that the Moabites and the Ammonites could not be that, but not exclusively. In other words, for instance, we have Ruth. Anybody read the book of Ruth, right? Remember what country she was from? Moab, right? She was a Moabite. So if you embrace Yahweh as the one true God, you could in fact participate with the congregation. But as a general rule, and part of this was because they worshiped gods who demanded that they sacrifice their own children, right? And God says, no, you can't, you can't participate in that and go worship Yahweh. So they read that the Ammonites and the Moabites should never be admitted into the assembly of Elohim. By the way, I'll always use the Hebrew name for God because it's important. Elohim is the strong God. It's the one who, when he makes promises, we know he's going to keep them because he's got the resources. Uh, I, I made promises to my children throughout the years that they were growing up. And what happened sometimes is I really, I didn't have the time or I didn't have the money or I just misspoke, right? And I, I kept assuring them if they knew me long enough, I would disappoint them. 
So I did, uh, and they've gotten over it mostly. But uh, this word, or this name for Elohim means, when I make a promise, I can keep it. Because I have all the resources I need to follow through. So whenever the name Elohim is used, what's behind that is, I'm the God who can keep my promises because I've got the resources to do that. When you run into Yahweh, it is the covenant name for God, and it means the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who will be to his people everything that he is. He's not holding back anything, right? So he's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who is to his people everything that he is. That's Yahweh. But here it's Elohim. He said, because, this is verse 2, because they had not met the Israelites, this is why they should be excluded, with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our Elohim, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So they evidently had been participating at some level in the worship as if they belonged to Israel, but they hadn't really committed to following Yahweh. And they heard that and went, we can't do that. Now, I want you to cement these two revivals in your mind. Because at the end of chapter 12, it was, we need to bring the resources into the storehouses to take care of the priests and the Levites. And at the beginning of 13, it is, we need to be sure that we exclude the Ammonites and the Moabites from acting as if they're part of Israel. Because they are not. Now, looking at verse 1 to 3, there's a couple of things that stand out to me. Uh, and just keep that other thing in the back of your mind. Uh, and that is that the reading of God's word brought about obedience. See, scripture was not given to us to sort of satisfy our curiosity. It was really given to us to reveal the character of God so we know how to respond to him. And the better we know him as he's revealed himself in scripture, the better we know how it is we ought to interact with him. Can I get an amen? And so what we have in scripture here is they're not just rules for rules sakes. There are, this is who I am as God. And therefore, this is how you need to respond to me as my children, adopted into the family. As I mentioned in the first service, um, I've known Jesus since 1970. I was part of that Jesus people movement. My hair was much longer then. Um, But one of the things I've discovered now in walking with Jesus all these years is that the Christian life is actually quite simple. It's just not easy. Right? I mean, how complicated is do what I ask you to do. That's not complex. That's really quite simple. How easy is it to do that? Well, now we're talking about what's in the text here. It's not that easy because we've got an enemy. We've got ourselves. We've got friends who don't necessarily support what it is we believe. We remove ourselves from a local fellowship where we're going to get encouraged and challenged and whapped up the side of the head if we need it. And therefore, it becomes difficult to follow what it is that God wants of us. So again, as I mentioned, this is not about ethnic superiority when they're saying these people can't have full participation in the assembly. It is about keeping things focused on God. Because Eugene Peterson has a quote that I just turned 61 in January is becoming more and more significant to me. He says, nothing is more common in the life of the spirit than to begin right and to end wrong. Yep. I mean, that'll preach. Because you read scripture, Aaron, there are, I was talking to a few people after the first service, there are not many examples of people who are actually recorded in the Bible who do well all the way to the end. They start out great, and then they get taken out by one thing or another. 
So the second section, which actually starts in verse four and goes all the way to the end, I've entitled, the trouble with normal is it always gets worse. Uh, that if you just sort, sort of settle for, I seem to be doing okay, uh, the second law of thermodynamics says it's going to lose energy, right? You are, you are going to digress unless you're being very intentional about how you're staying connected to God and to his people. So verse four, before this, Eliashib the priest had put in charge, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of Elohim. And then this telling statement, he was closely associated with Tobiah. And most places when it says Tobiah, it says Tobiah the, right, the Ammonite. One of those two groups they just said in the revival, it's like, no, we'll make sure they're not here, right? He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he, Eliashib, had provided him, Tobiah, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So he was not only part of the worship, he, he got to have an office there. And they cleared out provisions that should have gone to the priests to make room for him. I mean, he had a lazy boy and, you know, a 65-inch flat screen. I don't know what he had in there, but he took up a whole room that had been set apart by God to hold the resources needed for the priests and the Levites. In fact, all three of the things we're going to look at here in the rest of chapter 3 are when God's people use what was meant to be holy, that is set apart, for the mundane. And the word mundane comes from the root that just simply means worldly, of this world, normal, quotidian. That's one you can use at lunch today. Just the ordinary stuff. And they were taking what was meant to have a special purpose and they end up using it for just as if it didn't really matter. Uh, when I explain holiness to people, I, I use my grandchildren as an example. I use them as often as I can because I don't use my own kids anymore as sermon examples because they make me pay. So with my grandkids, for instance, and they're over about three days a week, we have markers, right? And we have crayons because they are six, five, and two, and they love to draw. But those are holy markers. They were created for a purpose, and one of the purposes for which they were created was not to draw on the wall, right? They have a special purpose. They're meant to be used on like paper and art paper. And, you know, you can use sidewalk chalk on the sidewalk, right? That's what holy is about. It's you were created for a purpose. God knows what that is. That's how it, now, can you do other things? Yeah, you can. But that's not how you were designed. You are all crayons. Did you know that? You are all called for a special purpose. And by fulfilling that purpose, you actually honor God, the one who created you and called you into his family. But I digress. So Tobiah had set up some space in this room because Eliashib was closely associated with him. And here's why I wanted you to hold on the, to the revival at the end of chapter 12 and the revival at the beginning of 13. Because at the end of 12, it's make sure you got stuff in the storeroom, Right? And in the beginning of 13, it was, and don't let the Ammonites and the Moabites be part of the, the collective worship. And so Eliashib, this, I mean, this is great. This is a twofer, right? He killed two revivals with one decision, right? He cleared out a room that was meant to have the resources for God's servants. And he let Tobiah live in it, two for one. I mean, how many of us can do that? Actually, too many of us, but stop preaching, went to Midland. Okay, how could this happen? Verse six. 
while all this was going on, Nehemiah says, I was in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of Elohim. The leadership had gone away. The one guy they looked to. And evidently, Eliashib as a priest had enough gravitas, enough weight, that nobody called him on it, which is a sad commentary. Because even leaders can often get it wrong. Can I get an amen from anybody on staff here? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and there is that part of us where we don't want to be put in that place, but God calls us into leadership to keep calling all of us, including ourselves, back into fellowship to doing the things that need to get done because there's nothing more common in the life of the Spirit than to begin right and to end wrong. And we know that about ourselves. And Nehemiah had gone back. It was his job. He didn't want to lose his job. Spent some time, probably about three to five years, and in that short span, the revivals had wound down and things were going back to the mundane. So what was Nehemiah's response? Verse eight, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Um, He's gonna get even more worked up in, in a few sentences. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of Elohim with the grain offerings and the incense. See, holiness is non-negotiable. And when you realize you've been using your crayon for something other than for what it was designed, you, you clean off the wall, right? And then you apologize to your grandparents, Papa and Lola. And then you say, I'm not going to do this again. Lord willing, God helping me, and probably with some oversight from you as grandparents or whoever. Again, this is a, an analogy of the body of Christ. My commitment is, I don't want to go back there again. I want to be purified and move on. Then what he did in verse 10 is he filled the room back up, probably so there wouldn't be any more space for Tobiah to sneak back in. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. You'll remember that everybody was living, nobody was living in Jerusalem. Everybody was living outside of Jerusalem. Then they had to cast lots to figure out the one in 10 that was going to go back and actually live in a very dangerous place. Well, these priests had gone back to work in their own fields because the food wasn't there. Verse 11, so I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of Elohim neglected? I'm a word guy, so I love the fact that Nehemiah used that word because it's the exact same word that Israel had signed on the dotted line saying, we will no longer neglect the house of Elohim. So Nehemiah being a good preacher, turns that right back on him and says, why is the house of Elohim neglected? I mean, wasn't that your promise, right? You weren't going to do this again? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts and all Judah brought in the tithes of grain, the new wine, the oil in the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest of Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, the son of Zakor, the son of Mataniah, their assistant. Anybody else have trouble with Old Testament names? It probably wasn't even close, but who knows? Uh, second half of verse 13. Why did he pick these guys? Because these men were considered trustworthy. And Eliashib had shown himself not to be. So he found these trustworthy men, and they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my Elohim, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my Elohim and its services. Nehemiah wants to be remembered by God for the stuff that he got right, 
those days or seasons or decisions. And I think that's good. A good motivator to say, God, when you think of me, I want you to think, and I know I'm complete in Christ, right? And all the sins are gone. But in terms of how I respond to you, I want to be remembered for the stuff where I really got it right. Now, the second thing they did besides treating the holy room as mundane is they began to treat the holy day, the Sabbath, as common or mundane. Verse 15, in those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in, Tyre's over on the coast, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is, what is this wicked thing you're doing? Desecrating the Sabbath. How many times does he use Sabbath there, right? I mean, that's the point. And part of it, again, historically, is because part of the reason for the discipline of taking them out of their land was they weren't keeping the Sabbath because it was made for them. You're supposed to unplug from your normal duty to plug into God for one day because you trusted God enough to know that the world would keep turning I mean, the Jewish day starts at sundown, not first light. And I think, and others agree with me, so I'm going to preach it, that the reason God did that is he said, you know how I want you to start your day? By not doing anything you can take credit for. Just lay down and sleep. Because the world will keep turning. I'll be still on my throne. And you did absolutely nothing to make any of this stuff happen. And then when you wake up the next morning, God says, okay, now you want to join me in what I'm doing? Right, because I got some good stuff going, and I got it started without you. Right, I mean, we we have this attitude as though God got a good deal when He got me. Right, and and He says, "I do love you. I love you deeply. I loved you enough to send my own Son. I love you enough to put it in writing." But you are not the center of the universe. There is a God, and you're not Him. So how about you just go to bed and start your day doing nothing? And then you get up the next morning and join me in what I'm doing. Sabbath was meant to be a 24-hour period just like that. It said, you think you can make through the night? I'll show you. You can make it through 24 hours. And the world will keep turning. And I'll still be on the throne. And I'll do what I need to do without you. But then I'll enjoy having your participation the rest of the week. Right? So they had been beginning retreating this as if it were just like any other day. Boy, if there's a 21st century sin for us as North American Christians, it is that same thing. We are always on. And God says, I want you to unplug from your normal stuff to plug into me. Can you, can you give me that time? Verse 18, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates, because I could trust them, so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And once or twice, the merchants and sellers of good, all kinds of goods, spent the night outside Jerusalem, basically waiting to get in. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night on the, by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And we're going to find out in a few verses, he's not above doing just that. I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to do what again? Purify themselves and go guard the gates. I just picked up on that phrase this time as I was marinating in this text. It's like, purify yourself and then go guard the gates. Right? Don't let the enemy back in and take from you the very gift of God, which in this case is the Sabbath. 
in order to keep the Sabbath day holy, set apart. Remember me for this also, O my Elohim, and show mercy to me according to your great love. So what was the third thing that he needed to call him to? Because he'd only been gone three to five years. These things have already drifted. Verse 23, it's the holy relationship of marriage that they were treating as common, as if it didn't really matter. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. You ought to be becoming familiar with that name now, right? These are the very people that ought not to be part of this. Again, part of this is because, again, it's not, it, it was ethnic at one level, but it wasn't ethnic in the sense that we don't like those folks. These are people who sacrifice their children to their gods. And so when Nehemiah, well, first of all, God, but then now Nehemiah is calling him back to it, says, I don't want you marrying them. He wasn't being mean. He was saying, seriously, you want to marry a man or you want to marry a woman who will turn around and kill your own children to satisfy their God? How does that make any sense? And he backs that up as he goes through here. He says, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. This is verse 24 or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. How many versions of the Hebrew scriptures were there? There was a hint in that phrase, right? There was one. There wasn't like, you know, English and whatever. I mean, it just wasn't there. So if you marry somebody from another country and they don't even know how to speak Hebrew, even if they want to go to temple and hear the word of God and have the Holy Spirit stir them to holiness, they can't because they don't understand it. See, again, he's not being mean here. He's saying, you, are, you can't even imagine the direction you're going if you go here. You are not only cutting yourself off, you're cutting off your children. And Deuteronomy 6 is pretty clear, right? As you're going, talk about it, right? How are you going to do that if your source for that is in the Hebrew? Are you going to do the translation? Probably not. Verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah's, whoa, I know. And Mike's going to explain that later. I made them take an oath. You, th you think I'm kidding? Uh, took an oath. That's one of the nice things about being a guest preacher. It's like, well, that's a sermon for another time. Uh, I made them take an oath in Elohim's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of the marriages like these that Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his Elohim, and Elohim made him king over all Israel. But even he was led astray by foreign women. Um, I am wearing my WWYT bracelet this morning. Uh, this is a bracelet that was made in a home group we were in in Santa Margarita, which is the little town just north of San Luis Obispo. A whole 1,100 people there. When we moved back to Southern California, there were more people living in the apartment complex we moved into than were living in the entire town of Santa Margarita. But I digress. So we were talking, this was in the heyday of the, what would Jesus do, you're right, WWJD. And we decided this was actually probably going to be as helpful, if not more helpful. It's WWYT. What were you thinking? Right? Can I get an amen? Because when we are clothed and in our right minds, we look at some of our choices and say, where did that come from? comes from our own hearts that haven't been fully, we haven't fully grasped all that grace we talked about, right? And we've got an enemy who is more than happy to take you on another journey. 
In verse 27, must we now hear that you too are doing this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our Elohim by marrying foreign, for, excuse me, foreign women? Again, Ezra had addressed this 30 years earlier. Uh, they committed to not doing it. Three years go by, they're back at it. And so again, basically, Nehemiah is saying, if the wisest king in all of Israel's history couldn't handle having foreign wives, what makes you think you're the exception to the rule? And just between you and me, isn't that often where we end up? We think we are the exception to the rule. Well, God said that, but he obviously didn't know me yet because I didn't exist when he wrote that. So I'm, I'm the one guy or the one woman who can really handle this. Not according to Nehemiah, not according to WWYT. There was one situation in this context that particularly I think galled Nehemiah. It's in verse 28. One of the sons of Joiada, of Eli, son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was the guy at the beginning of the chapter, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. We read right over the top of this. When we're reading, you know, through the Bible in a year, right? We get to people's names, we skip over them. We get to genealogies, we skip over them, Right? But look at this. He was the son-in-law to Sanballat. And two names keep cropping up in this book, right? Sanballat and Tobiah. Both who it's clear. It says specifically, they did not want Israel to resettle the land. And specifically Jerusalem. So are, do they have Israel's best interest at heart? No way. But Eliashib actually marries off one of his kids to Sanballat's child. So they're related. Tobiah, remember, was the close associate of Eliashib, and Samballot's actually part of the family. If, and here's, here's what I take away from that. If the enemy can't get you with a frontal attack straight on, right, he'll do an end around. He'll figure out some other way to get you to compromise, a little bit here. Oh, what, what difference will it make? And again, I'm the exception, right? Verse 30. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign. You see that purification thing again? In other words, I get it right with God. I take care of and undo as much as possible what I've done. I get it purified and assign them duties, each their own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood, designated times, and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O my Elohim. Remember me for these three things. Of helping Israel realize that holy is important. Holy is so important. That brings us to so what? Those are two words that all the congregations over the years that I've been privileged to pastor have loved to hear. Because one, it means Paul's going to help me think through what are some of the implications of this? It's not just words. It's not just a great story that I'll tell to my kids. There, there ought to be implications. The other, the other thing that people loved when they heard that is he's almost done. Okay, um, here we go. The first, and by the way, again, if the Holy Spirit is has really impressed you with something that needs to happen or a way you need to change your thinking, go with that one. But I've got four things that for me were like, oh yeah, what about that? The first one is that we are a holy people, so we ought to act like it. It's very easy to turn the holy into the mundane. To take the stuff that God meant for a very special purpose in our lives and just treat it like it didn't matter. The second is, it's time to start over. Again. And again, and again. And isn't that part of the great news of the gospel? As there's always a way back, right? We can be out of fellowship, disconnected with the body of Christ. And when we turn around, not without consequences, right? God doesn't always stop 
the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow, right? We, we, <clears throat> we break the law of the harvest and then we pray for crop failure, right? We, we don't want this stuff to follow through. And sometimes it does, but that doesn't mean we can't get reconnected in a solid relationship with God and with the people around us who love Jesus. This is one of the great things about ministries like Celebrate Recovery is they do on a daily basis what we ought to all be doing, saying, I can't do this myself, right? I am broken. The third thing that I saw here was the end is as important as the beginning. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. And maybe it's because I just turned 62, but this idea of finishing well is more and more on my mind. Because I've, and again, especially working with the district where I, we have 200 churches just in our district alone, right? And that's pastors and their staff and their congregations. And I wouldn't even want to start to tell you some of the stories about what goes on where guys who are doing so well, women who are doing so well, and then they fall. So finishing well, I think is important because it is a marathon, not a sprint. And the last one is remember me. That is, how do we want to be remembered? When people think about us, do they think about our willingness, even when we do mess up, to get back in fellowship, to acknowledge it and move on? The word confession in 1 John 1, 9 simply means to say the same thing about my sin that God says. And what does he say? It's wrong. I died for it. And how about we move on? All right, that's, that's a loose paraphrase, but that's what 1 John is about. Acknowledge it. Don't, I mean, here's the irony for me anyway, and maybe I'm the only one who does this, but I tend when I've made a really obvious, committed a really obvious sin, is I actually start running away from God. It's like, what? I, I, I think he doesn't know it happened, right? Or it took him by surprise, like, oh man, now what do I do, right? No, it's already been paid for. And he wants my fellowship because he loves me so much. He's adopted me into his family. So I think this whole idea of, being remembered for following through. It's why Paul, for instance, in Philippians, could say, I kept the law perfectly. And No, he didn't. Sure he did. Because part of the law was, when you sin, here's the steps back. And so Paul, with a good conscience, could say, whenever I sinned, I took the steps back. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It meant he availed himself of those things in the law that would allow him to get back in fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, so much in this story of Nehemiah. So much for us to chew on and how easy it is for us to drift. I mean, a whole nation in somewhere between three and five years takes all those great plans, all those great revivals, the, the cards they signed, the commitments they made, and they drifted. And Father, that is so common. So Father, we pray as individuals and certainly as a body of Christ that we would Watch out for each other. We would care for each other. We would keep pointing each other to Jesus. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.